Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Cityware Selector podcast. I'm Margarita Kirakosian, news editor, and this time I will be talking to Robin McDonald, who is head of multi-manager investments at Schroders. In today's episode, he talks about the most attractive alternative sectors at the moment, how to select long-short fund managers, and how long it takes to spend $4 trillion. Robin, thank you for joining us today. That's all. Thank you very much. Um, as the cycle is slowly edging to the end, one asset class is coming to the fore, its alternatives, obviously, in all its manifestations. I was wondering how much does your team dedicate to research in this particular sector and what do you see as hot sub-asset classes at the moment? Yeah. At different stage, stages of the cycle, you know, we are looking for different sorts of characteristics. Today, the most important thing for us is, and again, we're a fund of funds, so we're, we're kind of uh, picking um, third-party fund managers um, to manage our clients' assets for us. But, um, you know, today, the most important thing from our perspective is being able to identify funds and fund managers that have both the willingness and the ability to make money um, in an uncorrelated fashion relative to other major asset classes like equities and bonds. So there are many things that a lot of people have in portfolios today, um, you know, something like property being an example, which people term an alternative, and I guess it is, but actually over time it bears a reasonably high correlation to bonds. Um, and you can understand why, it's a leveraged asset class and um, it's very highly correlated to interest rates. Um, so for us, it's probably not the right time um, to be having a significant allocation in property, perhaps earlier in the cycle, yes. Um, but today, probably not. Um, equally, you know, we're dedicating a lot of our time at, at the moment to um, long-short equity funds. But what I would say is that on average, if you look at something like the IA absolute return sector, on average, and clearly we're not looking for the average fund, but on average, um, that the return profile within that sector is um, directionally very similar to equities. Which is to say that take Q4 of 2018, Q1 of 2019, we had a 10% drawdown in the equity market and a, a recovery which recaptured most of those losses. Alternatives is a really big area. You mentioned real estate is something that you might consider in the future, albeit not now. What about um, more esoteric things, more liquid things like private equity, private debt, uh, infrastructure? Is that part of your coverage? Yeah, we um, in theory it could be. But the truth is we run um, you know, daily dealing mandates and I, I am quite and always have been pretty focused on um, managing liquidity mismatches. Um, and that is to say that everything that is in the portfolios, broadly speaking, is traditional liquid daily dealing. And although many of the asset classes that you mentioned are now available either through investment trusts or open-ended vehicles, I am not entirely comfortable having them um, in our fund of funds in a daily dealing structure. Um, other things outside of the long short space, I mean, we're, we're pretty optimistic today about gold, I have to say. Um, you know, I think it's, it's you know, gold has been one of those asset classes that has kind of been dormant to weak over the course of recent years. And in many respects, that's quite understandable. Um, you know, we've been in, um, an economic expansion where you know the corporate sector has been doing well and um, investors have benefited from you know growing profits, growing dividends, expanding PE multiples, um, 
once again, they've made money clipping coupons on bonds or bond yields having fallen. They've made kind of capital returns there. So it doesn't surprise me that gold, which, you know, is a reasonably esoteric asset, albeit one with a long history and track record, it doesn't surprise me that it's been out of favour. But I think as this economic cycle ultimately matures, again, if you think about bonds and how low their yields are today relative to history, you know, investors at some point are going to want to... Um, you know, allocate a greater degree of their capital to safe haven assets. And there are just fewer safe haven assets today, um, full stop, particularly those with a positive yield. I mean, once again, German bond yields today kind of yield minus 25 basis points. It's a bit nuts. But, you know, they don't serve the same role that they would have been able to do historically. Gold, I think, is interesting. You know, if you look over the course of history, it tends to be quite negatively correlated with equities. I also think that come the next downturn, you know, um, we did a little exercise uh, in one of our quarterly notes a little while back, and we were trying to capture for our readers, um, you know, the quantum of money printing that has occurred over the course of the last um, 10 years. So we took the, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet and we said, okay, they expanded their balance sheet by $4 trillion. I mean, it sounds like a big number, but, you know, we're all getting used to big numbers these days. So let's try and capture what $4 trillion is. And uh, so we put in the note, um, if you had to spend $20 of every second, every second, of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, how long would it take you to spend $4 trillion? And I don't know if you want to take a stab in the dark, you're shaking your head, you don't want to. But, you know, I, I did this with an audience recently and one guy said 30 years and another guy kind of said 100 years. And, you know, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. But in order, you know, at the rate of $20 a second, it would take you 5,542 years to spend $4 trillion, right? It's a big number. And that's just the US. So you think globally, um, globally we've done about $16 trillion over the course of the last 10 years. So whatever that is, 22,000 years at the rate of $20 a second. I mean, it's a mind-blowing amount of money that has, in effect, um, been pumped into global bond markets. So it's, it's, in a way, not really a surprise that the market relative to its own history looks a little bit, um, you know, perverse. But we know a few things. So we know that during, as a response to the previous downturn, you know, we kind of cranked conventional monetary policy. I interest rates went from, you know, wherever they were, 5% to the zero lower bound, or in Europe today, they're still negative. In Japan, they're still negative. So we know that outside of the US, you know, there isn't really a huge amount of um, capacity to pull that lever again. But of course, once they exhausted conventional monetary policy, they went down the route of unconventional monetary policy, which is all this money printing, this QE. But we've been told in recent years that every increment of QE gives you diminishing returns. So the question is, 10 years into an economic expansion, 10 years into a bull market, um, you know, the next time we experience even a garden variety plain vanilla recession, how are central bankers going to respond? And I would just say that, you know, given that they can't really cut interest rates and they're going to have to compensate for that, given that we've printed $16 trillion and, you know, we know that's got diminishing returns, you know, if they are going to go down the money printing route, what's the number going to be? Is it going to be another 16 trillion? Is it going to be 32? Is it going to be 48? The truth is, we just don't know. But whatever the answer is, I can't help but think, at least temporarily, it should be pretty bullish with gold. Um, and that is at a time where gold 
I wouldn't go as far as to say it's a, a, a forgotten asset class, but it's pretty damn unpopular. So it's another, it's another thing that we've been adding to in the portfolios um, and that I think, forgive the pun, but I think it's got a pretty bright future. When selecting uh, launch road fund managers, what are the main key things to pay attention to? Understanding the parameters within which they operate. So, you know, are they are they running a global strategy? Are they running a UK strategy? Is it just equities or is it equities, bonds, um, commodities, currencies? Um, what does their gross exposure look like? Um, you know, are they running uh, a very high gross? Are they carrying leverage? Um, what does their net exposure look like and how does that kind of flex over time? Same with the gross. Um, you know, are they broadly speaking market neutral or are they pretty directional? Um, are they willing to go net short? Um, how do they think about um, their short position on a beta adjusted basis? Um, all of these sorts of things, when you, look at a, when you look at a portfolio or when you look at, let's say, just a kind of a, a, a fact sheet, they might not be that clear. Um, but embedded in many of these portfolios are material risks, material skews. So understanding those skews is very important. So to give you an example, um, many of the funds that we have at the present time, you might look at, let's say, their net exposure, and they'll say they'll have a gross of 100%, uh, let's say, uh, so they'll be 50% long, 50% short, their net exposure will be zero. And you could look at that and say, well, it's pretty plain vanilla and actually... Uh, they don't appear to be taking that much risk. But their return profile might be heavily, heavily dominated by the skew that they've got within the long book and the short book. Because it's, you know, you could run this thing as, um, you know, a very plain vanilla pair trading type strategy where you go long BP, short Shell. They're both in the same industry. They're both mega cap oil um, companies. Or you might say, I'm going to go long the 50-est, the 50 most expensive companies in an index and the f go short the 50 cheapest companies in the index or vice versa. Um, and clearly you might still have a net market exposure of zero and a gross of 100, but the return profile will be radically different. So understanding all of those things um, is really our bread and butter and what we do day in, day out. So today, for instance, I was, um, you know, I, wake, I woke up this morning and I read a, on the way into work a 30 page uh, monthly note from one of our uh, global equity long short guys and at nine o'clock I was having a meeting a two hour meeting with another one um, that's what kind of excites us and um, and I think it's a really interesting time for strategies like that because again if you were just um, approaching the markets today with a traditional portfolio that's long both equities and bonds it's been a fantastic place to be but actually, I don't think the future returns look anywhere near as compelling as those of the recent past. Mm -hmm. How do you ensure that the strategy is truly uncorrelated? Because it can say something, something on paper, but really not yeah, correspond so, to what I it mean, claims. Clearly, um, you know, it's, one can't just have a theory. One's got to have a theory and it's got to be backed up by evidence. And we evidence test... Um, you know, an awful lot. Uh, so we do that through um, not only analysing historic performance, but also analysing um, past portfolios, current portfolios. Um, but I don't think you get, you can't, um, you can't really compensate for having fantastic access to the people running the portfolios. Like I said this morning, 
from 9 to 11, you know, we were sat one-on-one -on -one with somebody who runs some uh, long short money for us. And, you know, they're in the process of changing their portfolios around a little bit. They had a good year last year. Um, and understanding the rationale, the portfolio implications, um, that's incredibly important. Um, and then it's observing day-to-day -day forensically how the portfolios behave. And as soon as they start behaving in a manner that we believe is, um, you know, surprising, um, then we're on the phone or we're sending an email um, or we're having a follow-up meeting. Um, so it's pretty, it's pretty forensic. I have all of these portfolios, the, uh, the long-short portfolios, live on my Bloomberg terminal. Intraday, I can see exactly what's driving the returns, both long and short. Um, so we always try and minimize the element of surprise. And, and then the rest of it comes down to, you know, how can we efficiently construct portfolios that express um, the sort of risks that we uh, are wanting to take and minimize the sort of risk that we aren't wanting to take. Um, and that's a whole other process where we're utilizing all sorts of kind of risk systems and bits and pieces like that. Mm -hmm. How much does the personality of a fund manager matter in these instances? I think it matters massively. I think it matters. So, I mean, number one, um, I don't know if this makes me sound old fashioned, but you know, integrity to me is incredibly important. You know, we're entrusting our clients' capital um, to individuals. And whether they're running um, long short funds, absolute return funds, whether they're running traditional long only portfolios, the same is true. You know, we need to be able to look at the whites of the eyes, um, understand their motivations, understand um, how they work, why they do it a particular way, understand their investment philosophy, their process. Um, such that we are able to form an expectation as to how not only the portfolio is likely to behave, but how they're likely to behave. Because quite frankly, we work in an industry where nobody is infallible. Um, you know, things go wrong. And, you know, things go wrong for every portfolio manager. Um, however fantastic your track record or your reputation, it's how you respond that is incredibly important. So we're always trying to um, ensure that our portfolio managers um, their motivations are right, um, they're well balanced, their overweight in common sense is something that I like to, you know, it's a bit oxymoronic, isn't it, common sense? It's not that common, actually. And, and, and the point is, when you're running portfolios and you're custodians of people's capital, it's a very important and I believe underrated skill. Um, so again, sitting down with portfolio managers, um, assessing them as individuals as well as investors is a big, big part of what we do. Will you look at the interaction with the analyst uh, team? Because sometimes there is a big ego in the team and yeah. then you probably want to ensure how this whole thing adds up with the rest of the yeah. team. Yeah. No, I, I mean, again, on both the traditional long-only side and also with hedge funds, we spend a lot of time both at our offices interviewing fund managers and kind of the, the primary analyst within a, a team, if there is a team. Um, or we're in their offices and we're meeting kind of the full, uh, the full roster of people who are um, important, either idea generators or people executing decisions, that's incredibly important. And again, just having a, being able to judge the environment within which these guys um, or gals operate. Um, again, culturally, are they in the right sort of spot? Is the firm that they're working for putting them under undue pressure? You know, it's a very high pressure job. And again, you're not you know, nobody um, has a monopoly on good ideas. Um, it may 
seem that way sometimes you know some people some fund managers appear almost bulletproof but you know history kind of bears out the fact that that isn't uh, isn't really uh, isn't really true perhaps Warren Buffett aside but um, so yeah understanding understanding the the nature of the team how they interact um, do people have big egos do they uh, are they problematic um, you know when things go wrong if you've got a problem does do, do, do they do they kind of rally the troops and lift people up not put them down you know those are those are all kind of important things and it's certainly the way that I try and run this team albeit it's early days um, but uh, you know you try and lead a little bit by example and but I think that um, you know we've got a good team of diligent hard-working people here who very much enjoy what they do and we look for the same sort of characteristics and the same sort of traits within people who we we allocate our clients money to. Mm-hmm. Is it crucial for you for a fund manager to be investing his or her own money into their product? Yeah I mean yeah absolutely it makes a big big difference. I, I, <clears throat> I mean if I think back across my own career what I would say that a couple of things have taken me um, by surprise in the sense that you know I was an analyst before I came a, became a kind of a portfolio manager and you know, as a portfolio manager for 12, 13 years before I came, became a, a kind of head of team. Um, and with every change along the way, you, 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 feel, you feel it, and by it I mean kind of the pressures of the job differently. So as an analyst, you know, in hindsight, maybe, and maybe many analysts today don't really appreciate it, but, but you have a, a degree of freedom cover would be the wrong word but you it's not your name on the on the on the on the roster on the funds um, and then you become a portfolio manager and um, clearly the stress level dials up a bit um, and it's a slightly different job but you know along the way for my career I've always considered myself as much a, an analyst as, a, as I have done a fund manager um, and again in now running a team um, the pressures uh, are dialed up once again Um, uh, but it's fun it's kind of what gets you out of bed